I am thankful for freedom in Christ tonight. I am thankful for freedom in Christ tonight. Do you know nobody comes into this world born perfect? No one enters into this world and has it all together. You are born in sin, shaping in iniquity, and when you enter into this world, there is a price over your head that you cannot pay, that you cannot redeem and ransom on your own. But we've been singing tonight about the power of the cross, the power of the blood, what we could not do for ourselves. Aren't you thankful the blood of Jesus performed for all of us? For all of us. I think that's worthy of praise right now. I really think that that is worthy of praise. You may be seated tonight. Uh, we're going to go into the word. But I, I want to tell you, and, and I'm not going to read a scripture just yet. We're going to pray in a moment. And then we're going to enter into the word. But there is a name that when you invoke that name, there's incredible power embedded within that name. Embedded within that name is the power to heal, to deliver, to set free. Within the balance of those syllables, there is something that when you invoke it, there's a power that is released that is not a natural power, but rather it's a supernatural power. And it has the power to do some mighty things. I've seen cancer healed in his name. I've seen blinded eyes open, Aaron, in his name. My sins were washed away when I was baptized in his name. Tonight, I, I want to preach a message that I've never preached before. There's something that you have to do and I have to do that is so integral in salvation. And it's not just for the initial salvation experience, but it is something that you've got to learn for the rest of your life, the power of it. And that is the power of repentance. How many of you know repentance has power? Just like the name, the repentance has power. In fact, John said, if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I want to talk about something tonight in terms of repentance that I've, <coughs> excuse me, I've never you know, dove off into this. And I want to talk to you tonight, not about the power of me repenting or you repenting, but I want to talk to us tonight about what happens when God calls a church to repentance. When God doesn't look at Melissa or Michael or Kim, but he looks at an entire congregation, and he calls us to repentance. And so before we enter into that tonight, I want you just, you can remain seated, but extend your hands up. 
And I want you to say, God, in the balance of this message, I want you to speak to my heart. But God, I want you to do more than that. I want you to speak to every soul that's in this church tonight. I want you to speak to every heart, not individually, but collectively, God. I want you to speak to all of us. Let us all receive with meekness the engrafted word that you have for us tonight. And I want you to call an entire church to a place of repentance. Do you believe God can do that? Give him a hand tonight. Give him a hand tonight. When Christ spoke to his church in Revelation, he singled out seven churches. He spoke to seven churches, specific churches, in specific cities in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. They were actual churches with actual conditions that he addressed. The uniqueness of his letters to these churches is that they all include an assessment from Jesus that would either lead to a commendation or a blessing or they would receive a threat from Jesus. We do think a lot about the Lord threatening the world with judgment and fire and brimstone and hell and threatening unbelievers with judgment, but here in the book of Revelation, we have the Lord of the church offering a sobering, ominous warning of a severe judgment that was coming if these churches did not repent and did not turn. And this is really the only place in the New Testament where you have a passage where Jesus actually addresses specific churches and calls them to reform and repent. Have you ever heard of an entire church repenting? Ever? Not individuals, not a lost person, not even an entire family, but an entire church that came together and repented. Have you ever been part of a church that repented, that looked at itself and recognized its collective congregational issues and openly and genuinely with contrition and brokenness for its sins against its head, Jesus Christ, came together in an act of repentance. Have you ever known a pastor who led his church to repent collectively as a congregation and threatened heavenly judgment if they didn't come together in an act of repentance? It's not likely Pastors have a hard enough time calling individuals to repent, let alone a whole congregation and or its leaders for their corporate sins against God's commands. In fact, those who might be so bold to call their own church to repent would likely lose their job. But they would certainly receive hostility, and resistance and scorn and some level of rejection. See, I believe that in my experience, you receive much harsher criticism and pushback from saints on repentance than you ever do on sinners. Because sinners instinctively know that they're not where they need to be. Sinners just instinctively know that 
They are in need of the mercy of God and they need to turn and transition and posture themselves in a place that can receive God's mercy and forgiveness. But I've discovered that saints are not so easily convinced that they need to repent. There had developed in England a group of preachers who were called Puritans. How many ever heard the term Puritan? You learned about it in school. You may not remember it, but you learned about it in school. That was a label of scorn and derision that identified those who were always trying to purify everything. Always and ever calling for the church to repent. Always trying to push the corporate church into a more sincere and holy place into their personal lives. The result to the Puritans who called the churches in England to repent was a persecution that ensued from unrepentant leaders and unrepentant churches. The attitude led to one monumental day in English history. You can read about it. It's called the Great ejection. It's the official day that the church in England threw out, broke fellowship with all the pastors who had been passionately calling for repentance. They took away their churches, their ordination. They marginalized them. This had a massive effect. Many of them left England and came to the new world of America to escape the persecution that came from being labeled as a Puritan. It just simply needs to be said, why in the world would we ever expect a nation to repent when the church won't repent? For if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, that sounds like repentance to me, and pray and seek my face. Why would we ever think America would repent if the American church won't repent? There are many people running around today calling for the nation to repent. But what we really need to be calling for is the church to repent. Because unless churches repent and turn from sin and pursue holiness, there's no hope for a nation. For it is written that judgment must first begin at the house of God. See, while Revelation is a book of judgment on the world, Antichrist, one world systems, mark of the beast, persecution, attacks against anything godly and pure, the story doesn't begin with beasts and crowns and cashless societies. It begins with an autopsy on the state of the church. Because while judgment is sure for the unbelievers and the fearful, Satan will be punished and the world itself will be judged. But the story doesn't begin with the world. The story begins in the church. Before the book of Revelation gets to judgment, it opens up with three chapters addressed to the church. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are for us. They're not for the sinners. They're not for the ungodly, the abominable. They're not for the false they're for the church, the church in all eras. The churches that are mentioned in chapter 1, recited in verse 11, 
and also the churches that are listed in chapter 2 and 3 that receive letters from the Lord via John were actual churches. They lived and existed in actual towns on a postal route that went through Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey. The churches that you read about in the first three chapters of Revelation were just as real as the church you're sitting in right now. They existed. They were planted by the apostles. John alone is still alive. He is from that area, from Ephesus, where he started and shepherded the church. Ephesus was the mother church of these seven churches in Revelation. They were all planted, founded out of the church in Ephesus. You can read about it in the book of Ephesians. It's written to the church at Ephesus. They're actual churches. And so as we come to the book of Revelation, we come to the last decade of the first century. Within 30 years after the upper room experience in Acts chapter 2, with the apostles preaching the gospel, persecution began. There had been persecution before that. Herod stretched out his hand against the church. There were martyrs in the New Testament like Stephen, but an all-out wholesale persecution led by the dominant power of Rome began under an emperor named Nero in 64 A.D. and lasted until 68 A.D., four years. And during those years, thousands of Christians were killed in all kinds of ways, including Simon Peter and the Apostle Paul. The second great persecution of the church, Jesus predicted this, came under the emperor of Rome, and it lasted longer. It lasted from 81 A.D. to 96 A.D. And it was still going on and happening when John received his revelation. He's on the Isle of Patmos. He's been sent there to a prison colony for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's being persecuted. He is in his 90s and he's still alive. They had sent him there because they tried to kill him and he survived. And they sent him to this tiny island, a prison camp on Patmos. And so the book of Revelation opens with John on this island in the Mediterranean, 10 miles long, five miles wide, in a prison camp, hard labor, exile, no way to escape, only one way off the island by boat. The cave served as cells. If you visit the Isle of Patmos today, they will take you to the cave where records tell that John was housed as a prisoner and he received his first vision when he said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a voice behind me like the voice of many waters, like a trumpet. That's where it happened. You can go and visit there. He's an exiled prisoner. He's an old man. He's sentenced to die with little food, desperate conditions, and exposure to the elements. He's the last living original apostle. All the others have been martyred, and there's only one reason why he's still alive. He's the last living apostle because God has one more book that has to be written. And it's called the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
In the first chapter, in verse 11, the Lord says to John, write in the book the things that you see. Verse 19, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. He said, write all that I'm going to show you in a series of visions and make up the book of Revelation. One more book to write, a final book. And when this final book from God to the world is written, it will be a precursor to the judgment of the world and the return of Christ. But it's also the final book from God to the church. And the message that our Lord has for us is in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And it is a very threatening, sober message. It starts out with a revelation and the recognition that our Savior is giving this revelation. In verse 5, you're getting this from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the one who is the firstborn of the dead, the premier of all who have arisen, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one who loves us, releases us from our sins by his blood, the one who made us to be a kingdom of priests to God forever, and to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's Jesus. Verse 7 says he's coming in the clouds. All the nations of the earth and the tribes of the earth says will mourn when he comes in his judgment. But before we get to the judgment, there's a message to the church and it begins in verse 11. Write what you see, write what you hear, and send it to the seven churches. This is not what John envisioned. 90 years old, living in a prison camp. Jerusalem is back home, is destroyed and waste. 985 towns in Judea have been burned and slaughtered by the Romans. No messianic throne, no messianic kingdom. Israel is being ruled by pagans. All the apostles are dead. He's probably the last person on earth that saw Jesus, heard Jesus, and followed a physical Jesus. There was some hope in planting these churches. There was some hope in Ephesus with its incredible beginning that you can read about in Acts, its powerful influence in planting these seven churches. There was a hope because John was overseeing these churches and this work. Now he's in prison and he's hearing from the mouth of the Lord about the decline, the spiritual decline of the churches that he fathered. How are they succumbing to this present culture? They're finding it difficult to disconnect from the dominance of paganism and false gods and idolatry. And then throw on the top of that that the churches are being mercilessly and relentlessly persecuted. People are dying, being exiled. It looks like the opposite of what John signed up for. And now, in his 90s, He's seen a vision from God. Now, John was known as John the Beloved. He walked more closely to Jesus than any other disciple. He knew his voice. He even in one instance is recorded as laying his head on his chest. That's how close he was to Jesus. He knew his voice. He knew his mannerisms. He knew everything about Jesus, his cadence, his attitude, his spirit. 
And John, for the first time in over 50 years, is seeing Jesus with his eyes. And there's nothing cozy or cuddly about what John is seeing in his prison cell. In fact, it terrified him. In verse 17, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. It literally took his breath away. It was so terrifying. 25 years before Revelation, Paul is writing his second letter to Timothy. And Paul is laying out to Timothy the warnings that Jesus is going to say have become reality. In 2 Timothy, listen to what Paul says. He says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or me, his prisoner. Join with me in his suffering for the gospel. Retain the standard of sound words. Guard through the Holy Ghost that dwells in you the treasure in which you have been trusted. All these warnings were given to Timothy. He said you've got to exercise your gift. You've got to be willing to accept suffering and persecution. You've got to hold on to sound doctrine. You must know Timothy. He said, listen, already all who are in Asia the same province where John is ministering. Paul is talking about the churches in Asia. He said, they have turned away from me. They had begun defecting from the truth 25 years before the revelation. When Paul is writing to Timothy, it's already started. It's already begun. In chapter 2, Paul's last letter, he tells Timothy, be strong in grace. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier. He says, present yourself approved to God, a workman not needing to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Avoid worldly empty chatter that leads to further ungodliness, talk that spreads like gangrene and leads people from going astray from the truth. He said, it's coming, Timothy. All of this is going to come to the church. It's not here yet, but it's in the cards. It's coming down the line. It's coming. you got to flee youthful lust, pursue righteousness, reflect. Refuse foolishness and ignorant speculation. In chapter 3, he says, In the last days, Timothy, they're beginning now. Dangerous times, perilous times will come. Get ready, Timothy. Persecution and sufferings that happen to me are going to happen to all men. Evil men and impostures will proceed from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. Chapter 4, he said people would turn away their ears from the truth. They'll turn aside to fables. See, Timothy, this is what's coming upon the church. He closes his epistle by mentioning a man named Demas who having loved this present world has abandoned me. 25 years before John saw it in his prison cell at Patmos, Paul told Timothy, get ready, it's coming. It's happening. Jesus begins his book of endings by detailing how these churches had succumbed. They had fallen to the assaults of Satan. They were engaged in sexual immorality, idolatry. They were absorbing the culture, compromised, tolerating sin. They dealt with sin by allowing sin. I want to say that again. The way the church handled sin was by not preaching against it and just allowing it to infiltrate the church 
I, I have never understood the concept of people who think they can play with sin. That can allow their children to play with sin. That can allow their families to play with sin. Well, we're going to let our children just experience some worldliness so that when they get older, they'll understand what it's all about. That is the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life because I don't care how strong you think you are, how smart you think you are. Sin is a cancer, and you cannot control its spread once it gets a hold of you and your family and your children. The Bible says flee it. The Bible says touch not the unclean thing. The Bible says come out and be ye separate, saith the Lord. How can we as a church think we're going to embrace it and come out unscathed? You don't know the power of sin for the wages of sin is death. And you're going to mess with it. It's like handing your child a vial of poison and saying, well, the only way they're going to learn how to deal with is to play with poison. The effects of sin, ladies and gentlemen, are far-reaching and long-lasting. Even after the application of the blood, sin still leaves its scars in our lives. You could get baptized every day. You're not going to remove the far-reaching effects of sin in your mind. You'll never escape it. It's powerful. Sin is not to be tolerated in the church. We love people, we are patient with people, we help people, but this word teaches us that open, blatant, unrepentant, thumbing your nose at God is not to be tolerated in the church. It will produce judgment from God upon that congregation. There were false apostles false teachers, false prophets, prophetesses and prophets, seduction by error and preaching for money. In chapters 2 and 3, the Lord says, I know the hearts and I hate the deeds. You know, it's shocking to me that there are some in ministry in the name of the Lord Jesus who are proud of what the church is becoming. There seems to be a decreasing concern for the kind of doctrinal truth that produces purity and protection. The Lord doesn't embrace the practice of a church where sin is abounding. Where all kinds of assorted sins are being paraded. That's the opposite of a church. And to all of those churches in which these transgressions existed the Lord sounded an unmistakable call to repentance. Here is the only place in Scripture where you have a call from the head of the church to the churches, specific, actual churches that are dishonoring him. And he repeats one word over and over and over again. Repent. 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 Confess your sin. Turn away from your sin. 
go back in the direction of holiness. That's where Peter drew the statement that it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. It's a story from the Old Testament. You'll find it in Ezekiel 9, I believe. Ezekiel sees the warrior angels of the Lord enter into the city of Jerusalem. and The Lord speaks to a man who's got an ecorn, an angel who has a horn of ink that you dip your quill to write. And he tells the angel, he said, you take that ecorn and you go down every street in Jerusalem. You go by every house. You go through every byway. You cut through every hedge. And Aaron, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl that is crying over the sins of Israel, you take that ink and you put a mark on their forehead. After it was over with, he told the angels, draw your sword and go down through that city and every person that doesn't have the mark, slay them. Men, women, children, and listen what he said, start at the house of God. Don't start at the city limits. Go to the tabernacle because judgment must begin at the house of God. Repentance must always be on display in the house of God. He wants John to write to five churches that needed to repent. And this is what our Lord says. Chapter 2, verse 5, repent, I'm coming to you and I shall remove your candlestick from its place unless you repent. Chapter 2, verse 16, repent or else I'm coming to you quickly and I'll make war with you with the sword in my mouth. Chapter 2, verse 21, unless they repent, I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the heart and I will give to teach and everyone according to your deeds. He's not preaching to Skid Row. He's talking to the church. Chapter 3, verse 3. Repent. If you do not, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come unto you. Chapter 3, verse 16. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. Be zealous and repent. It's repent or else. There's no other option for the church. There's no other antidote for the church. You've got to repent or he's coming quickly. Why? Verse 2 or, or chapter 2 verse 4. I have this against you. Chapter 2 verse 14. I have these things against you. Chapter 2 verse 20. I have this against you. Chapter 3 verse 2. I have not found your deeds completed or sufficient in my sight, saith the Lord. Chapter 3 verse 16. You are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This is a call to the church for repentance. I want you to see something that I'd never seen before. There is a decreasing number of believers as you move from Ephesus to the last church of Laodicea. Each church is written to geographically. 
They are picked by their proximity to Ephesus. You've got the mother church, and then you've got these postal route cities that go out from Ephesus. It begins at Ephesus. Watch this. In Ephesus, they're all believers. It's the harmony book. It's the book about the bride. Read the book of Ephesians. They're all believers. There's not one word of rebuke in the entire book of Ephesians toward that church. In the, in the, in the letter to Ephesus, there's no mention. There's not even an unbeliever in the congregation. There's not anybody that's deviated from truth, not one. Ephesus is all believers. Read the book of Ephesians. The next thing you come to is Pergamos, chapter 2, verse 14. He said, I have a few things against you because you have some. It's not all believers anymore. There's a split. You have some there in your church who hold the teaching of Balaam. In the ministry, they're for money. They're corrupting people. They're leading to idolatry, immorality. You have some, in verse 15, who are teaching the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which is some kind of immoral behavior, some sort of cultish set of belief. And so he says, repent, Pergamum. Now you've gone from a church that's all believers to a church that's split. Some believers, some unbelievers. The next church is Thyatira. There are more unbelievers according to verse 20. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, a false teacher, lead my children astray, commit acts of immorality, idolatry, and you tolerate that. But notice in verse 24, I say unto you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who do not exalt this doctrine, I place no burden on you. So the group of unbelievers is larger in Thyatira than the believers. The believers are the rest. They're, they're just a group that's remaining. But the church is made up of unbelievers. Do you see the difference? First it was all believers. Now it's some of you. Now the believers are the minority. And then you come to Sardis. And you go down to verse 4. And he says, I have a few in Sardis, who have not soiled their garments and who will walk with me in white, who are counted worthy and have washed their garments in the blood of the Lamb. Wow, you go from all believers to 50-50 split to more unbelievers to a few believers. And then you come to the last one, Laodicea. And there are no believers. This is the church that the Lord vomits out of his mouth. He called them wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked. All believers, some believers, more unbelievers, few believers, and now no believers. And if you read verse 20... He says, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. He's not even in the church. He's outside the church. And he's knocking. Asking his church to let me in. 
Do you see the precipitous slide of sin when it gets in a church? This is a Pentecostal church that doesn't even have Jesus in the facility. Founded by one of the original disciples. And Jesus is on the outside looking in. Don't tell me it can't happen. Don't tell me we're above the fray. In reverse order, let's, let's go in reverse order. A false church that is no church doesn't even have Jesus in the church made up of religious hypocrites, no believers to be found. The next church is a dead church that has a reputation for life. See, when you write Pentecostal over a door, people believe there's something going on in there. They might not understand what's going on in there, but they believe something's going on in there. And Jesus said, you got a name over your church that says there's life, but you're dead. Spiritually dead with only a few believers. Thyatira is the immoral church. They're into witchcraft, spirituality. But it still has a remnant of believers. Pergamos, they're the compromising church, okay? I'm trying to reverse engineer this process for you so you can see it from the other direction. They're the compromising church. They're the ones that started the process that said, we got the power, and we got the worship, and we got the singing, and we got the lights, and we got the media, and we got the shout. But they embraced sin. They compromised. They said holiness didn't matter anymore. They said, we're going to toy with it. We're going to let our kids experiment with it. Just let them see. Let them taste. Let them feel. And before this process was done, Jesus is on the outside looking in. As Christ is my witness, we are not going to do that in this church. We're going to uphold the name. We're going to walk holy. We're going to live uprightly. Let me tell you something, folks. We are a loving church. We're, we're probably the most loving church I've ever been in. We love people, and we work with people, and we do everything we can to embrace. Listen, you know that. You know I'm not preaching something that you don't understand, but you got to understand this also. This is not our church. This is his church, and one of these days, we're going to look him in the eye, and we're going to give an account for how we lived, how we operated, how we functioned, what we allowed, what we embraced, what we stood for, what we stood against. And I'm going to tell you, we're still going to preach that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. We're still going to preach that you've got to come out from among what you used to be if you want to be embraced by something new. 
God is calling us to be like Him. To look like Him. Act like Him. Walk like Him. Speak like Him. We're not expecting that from babies. But somewhere, we have to draw the line. God gave me a vision about two weeks ago. I saw the children and I saw the parents. And this is what the Lord spoke to me that sat me on, on this trajectory. He said, They are crossing my boundaries and my lines and he said if they don't repent they're about to cross the line and he said they won't even know they've crossed it but I will remove my hand and my anointing and my call are you still hungry for the things of God or have you turned into one of these churches where your appetite for the flesh and your appetite for the world and your appetite to be accepted are greater than your appetite for him and his glory? Kimberly, do you remember the night that God filled you with this spirit? There wasn't anything you wouldn't do. There wasn't anything you wouldn't say. There wasn't any place you wouldn't go. But what we embrace is what pulls the trajectory of the church. I'm telling you that we have to tread carefully in the things of God. We have to walk, the Bible says, circumspectly, sober-minded, Because the lure of Babylon is so strong. When John, brother Aaron, sees Babylon in Revelation, go home and read it. John said, now I'm talking about an apostle that founded churches, walked with Jesus. John said, when I saw Babylon, I wondered great wonder and I'm thinking John any other word if the world system in these last days John looked 2,000 years down through history and he saw where we are right now and he said when I saw it it was taking me in it was drawing me in. It was pulling me like a moth to the flame. A man that had walked with Jesus when he saw the hour that you're living in, he said, I wondered with great admiration. And I'm thinking, 
the spirit of this age could do that to John, what hope do you think you have if you're not praying and you're not walking with God and you're not being led by the spirit? What hope do you have? John said, when I saw the age that you and I are living in, he said it calls, it awakened something in me. I'd never seen anything like it. That's why Jesus said, unless I shorten the days, no flesh would be saved. And we think we're going to meander through this maze of false doctrine and then not get our clutches on us. It's time, church. I'm not calling Allison to repent or Aaron and Julie to repent. I'm not calling Michael and Catherine or Melissa and Glenn. I'm not, I'm not calling Brother Danny and Sister Rita, or Brother Obi or Belle or Brother and Sister Hot. That's not what I'm doing. I'm saying as a church, we have to disembrace the false and embrace the real. Would you close your eyes right now? There was a powerful anointing that swept through this place last night. The Holy Ghost spoke to me a few days ago. And he said, I have not even released my spirit to begin to draw them. And I said, God, what are, you, what are you saying? What do you mean? He said, I'm still setting the stage and arranging the pieces. But very soon, my spirit's going to be released into this community. And they are going to come from the north the south, the east, and the west. Get ready. My question to you is what will they find when they get here? Will they find Ephesus powerful, anointed, pure, holy, Righteous, unity, strength, glory. Or will they find a Pergamos that has already begun the precipitous slide? Will they find a Laodicea where Jesus is not even in there anymore? He's on the outside asking for entrance. What will we be? Who will we be? If he were to perform the autopsy on us that he performed on Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia, what would he say? What would he see? 
Would he see a church that is sold out, lock, stock, and barrel to the gospel? That's willing to cash in their chips and say, God, I'm in this with everything that I have. Or will they, would he see a group of people that have a form of godliness but deny the power? What would he see? If the postmaster dropped off a letter at P.O. Box 238, what would Jesus say about this church? I feel that he's calling us to a corporate repentance. We're not perfect. We haven't arrived but with everything within us, we're striving to be what God's called us to be. What would the post-mortem be on Glamoury UBC? Holy, unified, righteous, full of love and compassion. Or would he say, I have some things against you. You're embracing doctrines that are not sanctioned by my word. You're, you're dealing in spirits that cause division and strife. You're, you're walking in ways that make it appear to me that you're trying to be one thing, but you're really not who you profess to be. You're all about money, possessions, accruing and having. What would he say? I feel a call to repentance. I feel a call as a church. We're not perfect. But God, if we could be like Ephesus, if we could embrace what you want us to embrace and disembrace the things that don't bring glory to you and walk circumspectly and redeem the time because the days are evil. If we could stand in truth, if we could know right from wrong and have direction and understanding and wisdom and knowledge. And love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What would he find? Calling us or better yet, Christ is calling us to repentance. Would you lift your hands and say, God, I want to be what you'd have me to be. I want to have what you said I could have. I want to live a life that's pleasing to you. Not a life that glorifies me, but a life that produces glory to your name. Come on, I wonder, is there anybody here tonight that's feeling what I'm feeling? 
I wonder tonight, is there anybody here that's feeling what I'm feeling? That God's calling you to higher heights and deeper depths. That God is calling you to greater consecration. That God is reaching for you like he's never reached for you before. But you're going to have to settle some things. You're going to have to come to some agreements with God. That God, this is what I want. This is who I am. I'm reaching for more of you. And in the process of reaching for more of God, the more you gain of God, the less of yourself you can have. The higher you go in God up that mountain of seeking, the less you can take with you. It doesn't become about you anymore. It becomes about who you're following. How high do you want to go? You can't carry weight when you go higher in God. You got to shed some things. You got to let go of some stuff. If you're going to go into the lofty peaks and the heights of spiritual discernment and anointing and strength and power, if you're going to fly where the eagles fly, you're going to have to shed some things. Lay aside the weight that does so easily beset. I wonder if we could stand all over this house and just raise our hands and tap into what the Holy Ghost is trying to do in this service right now. Tap into what God is trying to produce in our lives. Tap into the spirit and the realm of the Holy Ghost. God, it's not about me. It's about you. It's not about, I got to take up my cross, God. I got to learn to deny myself. Christianity 101 is deny yourself. That's the first thing you got to do if you're going to follow him. This can't be about you. This can't be about your dreams, your desires, your goals, your ambitions. It can't be about the world. It's got to be a self-denial. Take up your cross and follow me present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service and be not conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind God is calling us more of him means less of me I feel the Holy Ghost in this place Christ is calling us to a corporate repentance I don't want him to remove our candlestick from its place. I don't want him to visit us with judgment. I don't want his hand to be removed from off of our life. I want to walk with him. I want to stand close to him. Brother Josh, if you would help me. I wish somebody would just ease out of your pew into the aisle. Symbolically, it's just a symbol to God that I'm stepping out of where I am and I want to walk into where you're calling me. It's just, it's symbolic. It, it's all it is. It's not really a physical step. It's a spiritual step. It's a symbolic step. It's a metaphor. God, where I am is not good enough. I'm being drawn into more of you. And in order to be more like you, I've got to be less like who I am got to move from the place where I am into a deeper relationship with you but that sacrifice is self-denial it's letting go of things and disembracing things so that I might have more
of you. And I promise you, when you get a hold of God and a new and greater revelation and dimension, you won't even remember what you had to let go in order to get it. It will be so far in your memory, you won't even be able to recall it. You won't even be able to pull it back. You won't be able to even open up that folder anymore. That person's gone.